true crime reporter goes inside the case files of the Texas Rangers. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. You can follow the trail of the Rangers' epic stories and get bonus episodes by joining our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. From one of the world's most legendary crime-fighting agencies, this is an exclusive edition of True Crime Reporter, Texas Ranger Files. Bill and I recently went to dinner with two legendary Texas Rangers, Captain Bob Prince and Captain Randy Prince. Now, they are the only father-son captains in the history to this date of 199 years in the Texas Rangers. And we walked into a steakhouse by Jerry Jones' big practice facility, the Star, uh, up in Frisco, north of Dallas. And I noticed when we walked in, you know, they had their white Stetsons on and their white uh, Western-style shirts, Western pants, cowboy boots. And they're both tall men. But, Bell, I don't know if you know, I noticed every head turned, every head turned. And there were even like, comments. And the one thing I used to notice about Rangers, it's like there's this aura around them. Uh, out on crime scenes. I, I certainly know that when they would show up to talk to a suspect or something, you'd see the suspect's demeanor change. There was something about the Texas Rangers. Now, there is another quality about them, about intuition that you've experienced, you're going to tell us about. Yes, and you recall our stories about Texas Ranger John Acock, sometimes called Johnny Acock. And he is part of the story of the the day the last Texas Ranger died. Yes. John saved the little girl and killed the bad guy. And his partner, Ranger Stan Guffey, was killed that day. And John was a good friend to me, is still, and handled a lot of different cases. A lot of times I would have something unusual and uh, he would come help. Also saw him socially from time to time. My next door neighbor, when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, was... My Secret Service guy, he was our Secret Service agent for that part of Texas. He was a cowboy himself, Robert Blossman. He, uh, his daddy guarded LBJ, was a ranch agent for LBJ, actually. And Robert grew up in the hill country of Texas, what many would call a sure enough cowboy. Mm -hmm. He was a bulldogger in the rodeo, great horseman. And so John Acock and Robert were friends through, yeah. through just a mutual respect. And one note about Robert, now when I covered... President Reagan in the White House, Robert was on his Secret Service detail, and because he was a horseman and the president was a horseman, he would always work that. He did. He rode with President Reagan. He rode English up in Camp David, and he rode Western out in Santa Barbara with President Reagan and would hear the stories of the cowboy movies when they would ride. And so Robert was had been all over and then ultimately wanted to come back to Texas with the Secret Service, and he was able to. And so he and I were neighbors, cross-the-fence neighbors. He would cook burgers a certain way and did it from time to time. And so one at one weekend when he was doing that, I was with him over there. And he said, I told John to come over if he's in town. And so John Acock came over. And we were just watching the burgers sizzle and getting ready to eat, had our kids around and so forth. And Robert asked John, what are you working on? What do you, what do you got going these days, John? And he said, well, I... Uh, the Waco office is kind of busy, and so whereas John usually handled 
sort of away from Waco cases. He had helped catch them up a little bit. So he was working some cases around there. And he said, oh, I'm working on a murder. And what happened, John? Well, I say a murder. He says, I, I'm, I've got a case where a sort of older woman from one of the Waco suburbs has been missing for two or three weeks. They can't find her. The daughter's worried about her. She just vanished. She was at home. She disappeared. But the daughter, he said, the daughter suspected this guy who was a real estate broker in the area who was like 20 years younger than her mother, who had been to see her mother a few times. And the mother was sort of smitten by this younger, somewhat younger guy. Now, when I say younger, he was in his mid-50s. She was in her mid-70s. But to her, this guy showed her attention. She was interested. Well, he asked, why why was the daughter suspicious of this man? Well, said he, uh, you know, he took a liking to her. And I think she's been giving him a little money. And I think she's maybe given him quite a bit of money out uh-huh. of her retirement. And uh, anyhow, so and so we said, well, John, what's your evidence? Well, you know what? He, well, I don't have any yet. He said, don't have any yet. Well, what are you going to do? Well, he he killed her. We said, what do you mean? He, <laughs> he said, the real estate man has killed her. We said, what? But you didn't said you didn't have any evidence. I know he did it. John said, I know he did it. And. You know, you don't want to just question a man, but he said, I'm telling you, I know he did it. And we went on to something else, talked about Robert's work or hamburgers or something. About that time, oh, maybe a week later, an unrelated story, apparently, two fishermen in Waco, Texas, on the little Lake Waco there, which was fished in from time to time. We're fishing, uh, minding their own business, and something bobbed up and, you know, near them. And they were didn't pay much attention until they realized it's a human head. A human head had float was floating in the lake, and bobbed its way over to a couple of fishermen. The head was decomposed to the point where no ready identification could be made of it. But no torso, just the head, just the skull, decapitated. Okay, and. So it was sent, you know, police got it. They took pictures. They sent it off to the medical examiner, but there was just nothing. There was, there was not enough there even to recreate a face. So everybody had heard about that and that was odd. And everybody went back to their, what they were doing, except for John, who knew what happened in his mind. <clears throat> and so John learned that the, real estate broker who had taken a liking to this woman, perhaps for her money. John wanted to know, does he have any land? Well, no, he lives in a house in a neighborhood. Well, that kind of rules that out. Does he go anywhere? He tried to find out. Well, finally, sort of sneaks around and finds out this guy is on a deer lease in the Waco area. So for those that don't know, a deer lease is where usually a group of fellas join together, pay a little money, and they hunt deer during season, which is normally about November through January in Texas. And they'll go up there and horse around and maybe they have a cabin and they Mm -hmm. hunt, you know, kind of a Texas tradition and elsewhere in the United States, I know. At any rate, I found out he had a deer lease up near Meridian, Texas. They call it the top of the hill country. It's sort of a hilly area, about an hour northwest of Waco. So, well, okay, the lease was like 250 acres. That doesn't really lend itself to much. John as I used to say in Texas, took a notion. (laughs) He took a notion. Uh In other words, had an idea, had a thought that he would see one day if the DPS helicopter 
was available. The state police helicopter flown out of Waco. So he talked to the pilot. Sure, John, come on up. I'm not doing anything this afternoon. So John made arrangements to fly the helicopter. Thought he might fly the helicopter over the Deer Lease, an hour away from Waco, Texas. And he thought, well, of course, I don't know if he didn't know if the guy was there or not. He just knew it was deer season and perhaps he's there. He didn't necessarily want him to be there. He just thought, well, I better notify the highway patrol, the troopers in the area, that here's a license plate. Here's the kind of car this guy drives, uh, just so you know. And they said, well, John, if we see him, do we stop him? He said, no. If you have a legal reason to stop him, you can. But I'm just, you know, uh, doing a little surveillance. And so John uh, got in the helicopter and they flew over the ranch. Well, it happened that the real estate broker, John's suspect, was there that day. He was in the cabin with a couple other men. And the helicopter went one way and then another and got close enough to the cabin, apparently, where the guy heard it. And he went outside and looked at it and told the other guys, hey, there's a helicopter out here. And they said, well, so what? Well, anyway, there's a helicopter out here. And he uh, he went back in and stewed and stomped around and, according to reports, was pacing the floor. Now, Robert, visions of the telltale heart are coming to mind in my in my view of the Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart. Uh-huh. <laughs> <So> anyway. <laughs> anyway, so he, he uh, paced around and the helicopter continued to fly over his deer lease. And wasn't leaving. It would sort of fly in grids over the. <laughs> and he had enough of pacing and cussing and hollering at this people about this helicopter. And he got in his car and he decided to leave. So he drove down the driveway, long driveway, down to the state highway. And the troopers were down there because they told John they would be there. And they saw, oh, that's the guy. That's the license plate. Mm-hmm. And he was pulling a trailer of some sort. And it didn't have proper lights on it. Uh-oh. Probable cause to make a stop. And so the trooper just couldn't help himself. It was a young trooper and his sergeant. The sergeant was in the passenger seat. The trooper, the main highway patrol, was driving. And so they, well, gosh, there's no taillights on that, on that trailer. Why not? And, you know, not getting in the ranger's way, but trying to be of some use. Yeah. Maybe we can identify him. And so they drove behind him for a little bit and then pulled him over on the state highway. And the sergeant didn't get out of the car. So in the passenger seat, the guy sitting in there really can't be seen too well. The highway patrolman driving got out of his car and he approached the guy's vehicle, told him who he was, wanted to see his driver's license and his insurance. And the guy was friendly enough, stepped out with the trooper. And while he was back in his car getting the material, the license and insurance, the highway patrol sergeant stepped out of his door and was sort of to the side. Apparently, the, this man, this real estate broker, the driver, had not noticed the sergeant. But the sergeant noticed him and was watching him. And when the guy went in to get his uh, insurance papers, he grabbed a gun, grabbed a pistol from the front. And the sergeant saw it. The young trooper didn't see it. And the man came back with the pistol walking toward the trooper, and the sergeant hollered, gun, he's got a gun. It seems like the man was probably going to kill the trooper he thought was by himself. Mm-hmm. But when 
the sergeant was there and had his pistol drawn on the man. He turned to the sergeant. He looked at the sergeant. He looked at the trooper and he shot himself in the head and he dropped dead on the ground on the highway. The troopers called the ranger in the helicopter. John, something's happened. Well, what's happened? I'm busy. Well, they told the story. What happened? And John uttered a few choice words and landed the helicopter. And, and now he's got not only a missing woman, no evidence. Mm-hmm. Now he's got a dead man, no evidence. All right, I'm going to stop you right there. We're going to take a quick break. Real estate agent, suspect of uh, Texas Ranger John Acock, is driving down. He's stopped by two troopers, draws a gun, doesn't realize there's two troopers. He's probably going to get shot and then suddenly kills himself. And now Acock has been summoned to the scene. And so Johnny Acock lands a helicopter and assesses the situation and calls his sergeant. And sergeant says, good Lord, John, only you. Your man's killed himself. Well, he has. What do we do now? So John put together, with what he had, put together an idea to search the 250 acres. He felt like that guy killed himself because he knew he was guilty. And this this is John's mind. He killed himself because he knew what he'd done. He knew he was getting caught. And he figured the trooper knew you know knew more than he did. It was a telltale heart. Mm -hmm. He figured the trooper was going to arrest him for murder. They'd figured it out. And the trooper was only stopping him because he had no lights on his trailer. And so John believed that tells me what I need to know. Yes, sure he did it. The killer with this bit of a, either a conscience or a fear of going to jail. Panicked. Panicked. And so John assembled, as he did in a case we'll talk about one day in El Paso, but uh, John assembled a group of horsemen, horseback riders, some Dogs from the prison, cadaver dogs and other people hunting dogs. Bloodhounds, yes. And search 250 acres. And it seems like that is such a task and and uh, so ridiculous. But no, the dogs alerted to the an area near a pond on the land. It was a little tank dam or a pond dam, just a raised area of earth. And they dug in there and there was a bag. And it was all of the organs of a human being. Then in other places on the ranch where the dogs alerted, they found legs. Then they found arms. Then they found a torso. No head. The head had long since been bobbing in the lake. Well, now we're tying this together, of course, but what what happened? And so John begins to look into the finances of it, finds where this woman had been scammed by this guy and had given him tens of thousands of dollars of her retirement that he had pledged to pay it back. Apparently never paid it back. He was just stealing her money. Mm-hmm. And the daughter was starting to complain. We now find out that it's complained to the point she's getting ready to go to the police about this embezzlement. And so rather than face that, he kills the woman. And rather than facing killing the woman, he kills himself. But John had one more thing to do. How was this done? How was this transported? How was she cut up? And as gruesome as it is, he thought, let's see what vehicles he has. And the guy had another vehicle. It was a van. 
like a business van, mm-hmm. but it, but just a large van with an open area in the middle. There's a substance called luminol used at crime scenes. Right. And luminol detects the protein of blood and it colors it. If you sprayed it, for instance, right. it, would, it would show uh, the color. And then when you p- put an ultraviolet light on it, yes, it just glows. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. And so he luminoled the van and it looked like a slaughterhouse. Oh, God. Blood splattered and streaming and dripped all over that thing. And then he found a bandsaw. The man had used a bandsaw, done it all in the van. After he'd killed her, we suppose, then cut her to pieces. There had never been any evidence of it. The only evidence was suspicion of embezzlement. But a ranger had a great deal of intuition. And as he told us before, any of the story happened that I just told you, I know he did it. I just know it. And, and he did. And he was right. That's one of many cases involving Ranger Acock where intuition and strange things have happened. That's just an example of a story from John that ended. Did it end well for the case? I don't know. What would you say? He, you know, he. Well, at least the daughter found out what happened. To her found mother. out what happened. They found her body yeah. and the man did his own death sentence. Well, you know, John did something, too, that we all as investigators, uh, you know, the old uh, adage is follow the money. And he followed the money. That's Boy, right. That money, it always leads back to money. And John, his nature, so typical of the Texas Rangers, he's not lazy. He doesn't give up. And he's optimistic that he can solve it if he has enough time and enough help. And that's an example. Like I said, there was nothing to work from. And he was he refused to give up and he was sworn to solve it. Well, there is an old saying about them that one of the rangers many years ago said they keep on coming. Right. You can't stop a man that's in the right and keeps on coming. Yes. And that's that's John Acock. And we should say woman. There's a lot of female oh, rangers now, too. You bet. Uh, that men, I wouldn't want to men and women. With. Yeah. Yeah. Men and women in the ranger service now, as they were long, long ago, have that feeling that if given the right circumstances, they'll do the right thing and solve a case. I saw it in the look of the diners when we went in that steakhouse, and you almost thought that someone thought, oh, my God, is somebody about to be arrested in here, you know? There is an intimidating presence, but it is a good intimidating presence. In other words, it's uh, the white hat, not the black hat, and it is a feeling also that you're going to be looked after and protected. Well, this is a unique quality that we see, certainly among the Rangers. We run into other officers that just have this second sense. Uh, we've seen it with from our Free to Kill television show we're working on and the podcast about Kenneth McDuff. John Moriarty was a prison investigator, and he's got this sense. It's it, He thinks like criminals. That's right. They, they know how to put themselves in the mind of who they're looking for. What would they do? What would they think? Where would they go? That's right. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think I told you, I used to do when I was in college and I'd be home on holiday, I'd do ride-alongs with a highway patrolman who named Max Wama, who later became one of the legendary Rangers. And I always remember we'd be out, we might be driving through a little town and he would glance over and there'd be guys getting out of a car and he'd say, it looks like those boys are in town looking for trouble. And he'd write their plate number down. He was, he had this book and they would later solve crimes behind it because he just had this feeling 
And he cared and he cared and they cared, cared enough that it wasn't a job. It was a commitment to do the right thing and to law enforcement and to public safety. And they saw themselves as the protectors of those that often couldn't protect themselves. So one of the things I saw about the Rangers is they feel that it is a calling, a higher calling. And it has to be because first you got to do your time in the highway patrol as a state trooper. And then it's not easy to get in. It's hard to get in. Well, as Captain Prince talked about in our show about the uh, braving the bullets in the fire of the vehicle, one in 100 or one in 200 chance of getting in. And they often work alone mm -hmm. and they work in very desolate areas. Just It just takes a certain kind of man or woman. A self-starter, too. That's right. Well, that's a look into the intuition of the Texas Rangers. And uh, as you know, we do a regular every few weeks uh, Texas Ranger case files, and we'll be bringing you more. Thanks for listening. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our journey into darkness.